This morning, we continue our series, Mission of the Kingdom. As we make our way through Acts, we find ourselves today in Acts chapter 26 in a message entitled, Paul's Persuasion of the King. Paul is on trial. He's standing trial for two crimes, causing a riot and heresy. He's standing on trial and offering his defense between two of the men that were serving on behalf of the emperor, King Herod Agrippa, who was the Jewish king that was put in charge of the region of Galilee, and the governor, uh, the governor Festus, who was in charge of the region of Judea. And that's where we find ourselves. Paul offering his defense as he makes his speech before both Herod Agrippa and Festus. Acts chapter 26, these are the words of Paul to two of the most powerful men in the world of his day, beginning in verse 15 through verse 32. This is the word of the Lord. And I said, this is Paul speaking, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet. And I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant And witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins, a place among those who are sanctified by me in faith. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ might suffer, and that by being first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. But I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things and to whom, to him, I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for the chains. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to another, this man has done nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appeared, peeled to Caesar. And the grass withers, and the flower fades, but know not the word of our Lord. It stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. (laughs) 
How do you persuade someone of the truth? All throughout history, we've seen different methods employed to convince something, someone, that something is true. If you just study the West in the last 300 years, you've seen a number of things employed to convince people of the truth. 300 years ago, we had something called the Enlightenment. And it was in the Enlightenment that we were told that truth is not received or verified by faith, but it's verified through empirical data or evidence, that it's through reason that you believe something to be true. And the Enlightenment was attack upon Christianity in particular and all other faith systems that say that in order to believe something to be true, that you need to have faith. The Enlightenment said you need the cold, hard facts, rational evidence to believe something to be true. Well, in the last hundred years, the pendulum has swung to the other extreme. Through postmodernism, we're now told that really there are nothing, there's nothing that is fixed, that there's nothing like absolute truth, that instead truth is simply a social construct, that truth is simply the product of your environment or society, of your cultural surroundings, of your family, of maybe your religious practice. And ultimately, there's no such thing as absolute truth, and ultimately, all truth is relative. But I want us to see here in this passage that Paul takes all of the methods of the world, and he turns them upside down on their head, and he uses, by all the means of God's appointment, methods in order to persuade, as I said in the introductory comments, two of the most powerful men in that region to believe that Christianity is true. We read in verses 28 through 29 the main purpose of Paul's speech before Herod Agrippa and Festus. He's there technically to stand trial and offer a defense. But those two verses tell us that he's not there simply to defend his name. But what are we, what are we told? It says in verse 28, Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul says, with short, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all those who hear this message. What Paul is saying is, I'm not here to clear my name. I'm not here to defend myself, but I am here to persuade you, the king, and all those that are listening to convert to Christianity because it is true. We can learn something profound this morning through Acts 26 on what it means to persuade even the kings that Christianity is true. How does Paul persuade or attempt to persuade two of the most powerful men of his day that Christianity is true? The first thing I want us to look at are the methods of Paul's persuasion. The first thing I want to point out is that he employed the method of rational evidence. Back in verses 24 through 26, Festus accuses Paul of being crazy. 
Paul, are you out of your mind? All of this study and all of this training is driving you crazy and insane. And what does Paul say? I'm not the crazy one. I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but what does he say? I am speaking true and rational words. He's saying, I am using rational evidence, rational and reasonable words in order to prove that Christianity is true. And then he turns to King Agrippa and says, King Agrippa, I know that you know that this is true. Why? What does it say? The king knows these things. Verse 26, for I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped your notice because they weren't done in a corner. What is Paul trying to say? These evidences of Christianity, the evidences of the resurrection, the miracles of Jesus were not done in private, but they were done in public. Paul tells us that 500 people stood witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's one thing for one person to hallucinate, but it's another thing for 500 people to hallucinate uh, concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, I know you've heard of the miracles. I know you've seen the miracles. I know you've encountered people that have witnessed Jesus Christ. The empirical data is right there before your eyes. And he's saying to King Agrippa, you know better. I am using reasonable and rational and truthful words. He's pointing to the evidence and the facts of Christianity and saying, King Agrippa, I know they weren't done in private. I know they weren't done in the corner. And he points to the rational evidence of Christianity in order to convince these men that Christianity is true. And the reason you know that he has Agrippa caught is look how Agrippa responds. King Agrippa could have easily said, no, let me debunk all the facts. Let me debunk all of the evidence. What does King Agrippa do? He tries to divert his attention. He tries to divert the attention of everyone that is listening to this conversation. And what does King Agrippa do? Are you trying to convert me? So instead of debunking the facts of Christianity that Paul is pointing to, he tries to divert everybody's attention and says, surely you're not trying to convert somebody like me. And even at the end of this passage, we read the words uh, that Agrippa says to Festus, based on the evidence that Paul is presenting, this man should have been set free. Even King Agrippa acknowledged the empirical evidence, the rational and reasonable words of Christianity. He acknowledged to be true. Christianity is based on fact. That's why Christianity is so offensive, because Christianity does not take your preferences and your feelings into consideration. Because Christianity is based on factual evidence and factual truth claims, it stands on its own, whether you believe it or not, whether you accept it or not. It is black and white, cold, hard facts in which our faith is built upon. Paul uses the persuasion of the rational evidence of Christianity. But Paul doesn't only employ that. He also employs, secondly, the power of his personal testimony. Now, we didn't read the entire passage, but if you go back to verse 4, Paul goes into his conversion experience. He talks about the road to Damascus, 
And he says things like this in verse four, my manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. He's saying, everybody knows who I was, who I used to be. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was a law-abiding Jew. Ask anybody. That's my story. But then he goes on in verse 6. But now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise. What was the hope of the promise? That Paul, when he converted to Christianity, realized that my law-abiding will never do. But I recognized and accepted by faith the one who obeyed the law perfectly for me. The hope that was promised by our forefathers has come to fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I stand here on, in, on trial today before you telling you that my hope is no longer in the law of God as far as my salvation, that I could obey the law of God perfectly, but my hope is in the one who has obeyed the law perfectly on my behalf. Paul is sharing his personal testimony. And he's saying, men, you can argue all you want with the facts. You can argue all you want with the evidence. But the one thing you're not going to be able to argue with is I'm a transformed man. Ask anybody. I, my hope used to be in my ability to obey the law. And now I have the hope and the one who obeys the law for me perfectly and now empowers me to live a life that is holy and pleasing to God for his glory. The power of a personal testimony, if you know Jesus Christ this morning, is so powerful that you're able to stand before a skeptical world and say, you can argue all you want, but I know this Jesus has come into my life. I know this Jesus has changed me. I know this Jesus has transformed me and continues to transform me day by day. I'll tell you who I was and I'll tell you who I am now. And I can tell you by God's grace who I am being transformed into his image and likeness every day by the power of his Holy Spirit. Nobody can argue with the power or with the power and the, and the reality of a personal testimony. Paul shares it with them to show the evidence of the veracity and the truthfulness of the gospel and of Christianity Paul uses the rational evidence of Christianity. He uses the power of his personal testimony. But the third method he employs, and most importantly, is biblical truth. Look what he does in verse 22. As he's engaging with Agrippa, he says, To this day, I have the help that comes from God. And I stand here testifying both to small and great saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said. He's indicting a fellow Jew. He's saying, Agrippa, you know what the prophets said. You know what Moses wrote about. He's talking about the scriptures, what we would consider the Old Testament scriptures. And he says, Agrippa, you know better. Everything I've said today is, comes directly from God's word. And so Paul uses biblical truth the scriptures to prove the veracity and the truthfulness of Christianity. And we need to be reminded as there are calls to divert our attention 
or our allegiance away from the word of God as the sufficient word of God that we would be reminded that this is where the power is. That the author of Hebrews says this word is living and active that God's truth as it's revealed in the Old and New Testament scriptures has the power to transform. I can't tell you how many people I've encountered that often say, I've read the Bible my whole life, and then all of a sudden it made sense. The light went on, the coin dropped. What happened? The Holy Spirit happened. The Holy Spirit came into that person's life through the power of reading biblical truth, the biblical truth that is living and active. And if you are a skeptic here this morning, I can present to you the evidence. I can share with you my personal testimony. But I would challenge you to read the word of God, to look at the truth claims, to read about who Jesus is, and what he claimed to do, and how he fulfilled all of the Old Testament promises, to read the Old Testament, and to read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and pray that God would open up your eyes so that you would be able to say that through the truth of Scripture and the truth of God's Word, I was once blind, but now I see. I was dead, but now I'm alive, and alive to the things of God. Paul employs all of these methods standing on this great stage at his trial. The rational evidence, his personal testimony, and most importantly, biblical truth to persuade the most powerful men of his day. But the question is how? What gave Paul such boldness? What gave Paul such courage to stand before two men that had the power to feed him to the wolves? Was it his intellect? Was it his brilliance? Maybe you might sit here and say, maybe it was his pride, his arrogance. He just had an inner toughness. Well, it certainly wasn't his pride or his arrogance because after being called a crazy man, what does Paul say? He still honors Festus. And he says, most excellent Festus. It certainly wasn't his pride or his arrogance that gave him that inner toughness to not back down. So where does the power for persuasion come from? The power comes in verse 18. In verse 18, Paul says, and this is important, listen to this, because this is where we find our power to persuade and to have boldness and to have courage. Paul says to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they might receive forgiveness and a place. If you have your Bibles, underline those two words, forgiveness and a place. What Paul is doing, he's describing the fruit of the gospel He's explaining that when a person comes to Christ or saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, they receive two things, forgiveness of sins and a place. Now you might say, what's the big deal about a place? The ancients understood the power of place. Place isn't just the place I'm standing. Place meant a home. Placement, a place where you are forever accepted, just as you are. 
You see, what Paul is revealing is he's revealing the benefits of the gospel that yes, you are forgiven of your sins through justification, but you are adopted as a child of God forever and given a place. You see, what Paul is revealing is the two things, whether you realize it or not, that every human being longs for, to be forgiven of my sins, but to forever have a place where I could be fully accepted and fully loved forever. And it was those two keys, forgiveness and a place, that empowered Paul because Paul in that moment said, I have the two things I long for from the only king that matters. This earthly king means nothing to me. This earthly king can mock me. This earthly king can call me crazy. And this earthly king can take my life because I have the thing that I have longed for forever, to be forgiven and to be accepted from the true king of kings and Lord of lords. The passage ends, and we're told that Agrippa, although he acknowledged the evidence of Christianity, that he never believed. I almost named this sermon, Almost Persuaded. But you know it would be a tragedy? If you left here today, almost persuaded. Because there is no hope. There is no hope except for Jesus Christ. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords who obediently lived the life that you could not live, fulfilling the demands of the law on your behalf, and then on that Roman cross took on our sin and our unrighteousness and in exchange by faith alone, we receive his righteousness so that we stand forever before a God holy and blameless, forgiven, and with a place. And if you do not know this Jesus who came to be both Lord and Christ, I pray that you would be persuaded, persuaded to believe, persuaded to repent, persuaded to place your faith and hope in the only king that truly matters. So that the world might call you crazy, but you know in Jesus Christ that there's only sanity through those and for those that place their faith and hope in Jesus Christ. You see, true sanity lies only with those who build their lives on that firm foundation that Jesus Christ is both Lord and Savior. I wonder what Paul would say to us today. I think he would say to the skeptics in the room, I pray that you know Christ as I know him, as the greatest treasure, greater than anything this world could ever offer. And he would stand here praying that you would be persuaded. I think he would say to those that do know Christ, that let the world call you crazy. Let the world say that you've gone mad but continue to serve him as Lord and as Christ because that message that I have come into the world to save sinners is the only hope 
for a world that is lost and dying. So keep on serving Christ, even if they call you crazy, because this is our high calling and our special privilege, empowered by the gospel of Christ to persuade a lost and dying world that Jesus Christ alone is king. Let's pray. Father, the greatest tragedy in this life is to be almost persuaded. And Lord, I pray that no one here and no one watching from home or listening to this sermon would be almost persuaded. But they would recognize that Jesus is who he says he is. That on the basis of reasonable truth claims and evidence of Christianity, on the power of personal testimony and transformation, and on the basis of biblical truth that many today would be persuaded to embrace you as Lord and as Christ. They would acknowledge that they are a sinner in need of grace. They would acknowledge that it was only through the obedient, perfect law-keeping of Jesus Christ on our behalf that we could be saved. May many confess with their mouth today that Jesus is Lord. And many believe it in their heart that God raised him from the dead. The promise is salvation, forgiveness of sins, and a place, a home, where we will be forever accepted as sons and daughters of the Most High God, fully accepted into his presence, heaven where we will dwell before the face of God forever, not on the basis of what we've done, and not on the basis of what we failed to do, but on the basis of what Christ has done by way of the cross. Repent and believe and experience salvation. Experience the forgiveness of God and his adoption into his family forever. And Lord, may we, the people of God that do know Christ, in a world that mocks, in a world that says we've gone mad, in a world that says we're delusional, may we be bold and courageous, not according to our power or strength, but according to the power of the gospel because we know that this world has no hope apart from Jesus Christ. So may we persuade men and women, rich and poor, those in high places and low places, our neighbors, our family, and our friends, that Jesus Christ is the King and salvation is found nowhere but through him. We pray this in his name. Amen.